Joining us this week, it's Adam Myros. Yes, I, I'm here, Steve. Myros, you ever you ever just want to get down on all fours and squeal like a piggy? Well, you know, I I have a dog. Sometimes you get down on all fours and make some <laughs> dog noises. You know, <laughs> run around with the dog, get him, get him running around the apartment, burn some energy. I I don't know. Uh-huh. That's probably as close as uh, as I get. You know. Uh, Jack, how do you like to burn energy when you're down on all fours making animal noises? Well, I think that in and of itself is the secret, which a lot of people miss. They overcomplicate things. But really, the down on all fours burning energy animal noise trilogy is, is really all you need. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all there is to it. Uh, well, I, in case you haven't guessed yet, uh, we're, we're actually we're talking about Delivers. More than just Delivers. We're talking about John motherfucking Borman. And... God, I I don't know if I feel bad for John Borman, but what the fuck? <laughs> like, so you you've got this guy who has arguably made, and I mean, if you argue against this, I think you're a fucking moron. He, he's made one, if not two, of the absolute best movies of the 1970s, uh, a period of cinema that uh, I think many film scholars would agree is like the best, and yet. All we associate him with broadly, and by we, I mean not us, but, you know, the unwashed masses. Uh, he All he gets associated with is, like, weird memes associated with his his biggest hit movie, and then the idea that everything he has created after that movie is somehow, like, an artistic and critical and financial failure, which is ludicrous to me. Well, I, I guess it's probably... Right uh, on the second two fronts to an extent. Uh, not everything, but mm. I, I would say uh, Zardoz and The Exorcist 2 were both like savaged by critics at the time and sure. then lost money. <laughs> no, you'd be surprised because Exorcist 2 actually made three times its budget. It cost like, it, it was originally budgeted for $8 million, ended up costing about $11 million, and it made in the 30s. So made hmm. money. Uh, got savaged by critics, um, but also, you know, Borman doesn't give a fuck. Like, originally, Exorcist 2 is a great example, you know, coming off of Zardoz, <laughs> like, you know, and, and what his career looked like after that, and he he took a swing at this movie that initially was supposed to be some Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 shit. The original idea was they were just going to rehash the plot as like, oh, what has happened to the psyches of the characters after this, and then just use footage that was unused in the original Exorcist and just make the whole thing a rehash. And uh, Borman, to his credit, was like, no, I want to do a real movie. Now, of course, he still had budget constraints because I think he wanted to shoot like on premise at the Vatican and, and various other places. And uh, he was like, no, you could shoot at a soundstage in Pennsylvania, you asshole. Uh, <laughs> but- I mean, it's an insane thing to hire Borman to do that like you don't you can hire anyone to like cut up some footage and rehash it and spend the money that's allocated appropriately like john borman is clearly Mm -hmm. has clearly every film is very much his thing um i think pretty much consistent throughout his career and it's it's funny because i mean he's 
I think he's he's nominated and maybe has won Best Director at Cannes twice, I think. And it's mostly, I think, for movies like mm-hmm. Leo the First, the one I've never seen. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever met anyone who has seen that. And for one other movie, I don't remember what the mm-hmm. other one is, but it isn't one of I think it's not one of his like, you know, the well-known ones. He's, he's kind of just kept on trucking in the, in the background, just doing very John Boorman things. And the audiences can either like it or not. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really give a shit. No, and and he's such a singular voice. Like, you want to talk about a real fucking auteur, here's your guy. And it's so weird because even among his well-known movies, I don't think they're ever really discussed that way. Like, we don't don't count John Borman among, like, you know, great visionary directors. Um, But... I mean, here here he is. Well, there's so much of it is that meme yeah. shit, you know, right? Like, no. yeah, the deliverance is, yeah, Ned Beatty getting raped in the woods. That's all it is. Just squeal like a pig. Yeah, you it got is a that concern, mouth. yeah, mm-hmm. that he's, he's kind of gone almost the way that Anya's Varda almost has to no, nothing she's ever done, but that, that risk that, you know, being defanged into, like, this meme character, Werner Herzog, you know, that their art gets lost in this kind of, like, right. stupid meme compression where they just turn into single images and this voice that was never theirs to begin with mm-hmm. and sure. Zardoz my god that movie will never never get a fair critical uh, appraisal at least among general audiences because it, it's just it is it's fucking oh look Sean Connery's in a fucking red diaper hardy hire yeah and you know what I clearly there's I, I love to hear different opinions especially on films that i love i love when i can read something that has the opposite opinion but it it really you know makes me think about something uh so most of the time i i don't need critical consensus i don't need people being like oh yes you know this movie's the best this movie sucks or anything like that and then that will make me judge you accordingly unless it's fucking zardoz that's the goddamn line that's the fucking line if you like (laughs) zardoz you're a smart person. If you don't like Zardoz, you're a fucking clown. Period. That's it. End of story. Take that, Siskel but we're not and talking Ebert. about that yet. <laughs> yeah, literally suck my fucking dick from beyond the grave, fucking Ebert. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, you don't want, like, I almost repel against critical consensus on individual films when something is, is too widely accepted. I'm like, well, it's probably boring. And <laughs> yeah. that's certainly not the case with, with John Borman's output, but you you do want that sort of critical reassessment and consensus on the director himself, uh, the filmmakers, because you you just want them to get their due. And someone like Borman, I I suppose probably was content with how his career went, but it, it just feels like he's one of these forgotten seventies auteurs. And he's this is some great shit we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So. Uh, Borman really broke through, I guess, in the mainstream with the first movie we're going to be talking about today, which is Deliverance, which isn't to say that he didn't put out uh, some solid films before that. Obviously, he did uh, Point Blank, which was kind of a minor hit for him. Uh, He did Hell in the Pacific, which is firmly in the, like, uh, you know, Turner Classic Movies uh, dad canon, uh, although it was not successful at the time of its release. And then the aforementioned Leo, the last, which I don't know, a soul on earth that's seen it. Uh, it's got like, <laughs> even if you go on letterbox, it's like 12 people have watched this movie. It's like, how the fuck have a 12 people watched a Borman movie from the seventies <laughs> that won 
Fucking hey, one can. Con like, stars Marcello Marciani. Yeah, no, who who would watch such? Who would tune in for such a Fellini-inspired '70s <laughs> film from from Sean Borman? Apparently not me. I haven't seen it. I'll, I'll yeah, probably track it down. Yeah, we haven't either. I know this is <laughs> this is equally our fault. I know. What when the fuck is the the next KG Free Leech? Is is that going on That's right happening. now? Give me some fucking Leo it's the last, last day. Brother. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, get get your little seed box uh, revved up. Give me some Leo the Last. I want it. Uh, <laughs> just <laughs> demanding things. But anyways, we get to Deliverance. And uh, God, I you know, if I was teaching a film class and I just wanted to teach how to structure a screenplay so that like conflict is is the most like beautifully articulated thing humanly possible, this is it. Like this is, it is a masterclass on conflict and tension on screen and then how to film that. It's, it's really a beautiful yeah. thing. It's also like one of the things we're, I'm currently doing in film school is, is this sort of history lens of everything. And this is also like, this is a Vietnam movie without being a Vietnam movie in like the most beautiful way. Yeah, it's it's and mm -hmm. it's like that also kind of joins that outsider canon. I mean, there's a John Borman as another British director who went to the US and made a film that is very, very much cuts to the soul of the nation in a way that a lot of American directors, you know, kind of missed or were, you know, were too, too embedded in. It's it's kind of reminds me like I think it was was it just a year I don't remember what your punishment part came out, but like Peter Watkins was around within a year either side of, of Deliverance. Um, you know, Peter Watkins came over and made that scathing vision of the this kind of growing American dystopia. Uh, Antonioni came in and made Zabriskie Point around the same time as well. I mean, there was this kind of, and e even the modern age, and I know some people aren't big fans of it, but I was very impressed by, I don't remember the director, I just remember he's British, uh, who made Hell or High Water. Um, which I thought was another just a really great um, film about America. Um, and of course, aforementioned uh, Werner Herzog and Wim Wenders. And there were, you know, all people were coming into the US, particularly in the 70s, to kind of like enraptured mm -hmm. by America, but also kind of like looking under the hood a little bit and getting kind of like mixing their outsider perspective with maybe a little bit of a remove to look at kind of how the most successful, fantastic, comfy, you know, kind of progressive nation on earth had some skeletons in the closet and a couple of a couple of things going on a couple mm -hmm. of bodies under the water as as deliverance would Dude, you know 72 was a, a good year for bleak shit on a tiny boat in in cinemas right because herzog's uh gary the wrath of god came out the same year didn't it 72 that sounds about right yeah yeah and that was <laughs> arguably in and both insane productions deliverance deliverance famously mm -hmm. all the actors had to do their own stunts because uh because apparently the studio kept they didn't want they i don't know why but they, they just had no confidence in the product so they wanted to kind of like bury it by maybe just defunding it by just not acquiescing to any of boorman's demands and requests one of them reasonable mm -hmm. like you know stunt doubles um and uh, deciding yeah. you know like no we're not going to do any of that if you want to make a whitewater rafting movie go and make it and get john voigt to yeah. do his own shit so they did <laughs> <laughs> oh it's it's a shame john voigt survived this one but uh <laughs> boy, what can you do uh yeah no it's man burt reynolds in this fucking movie what an unbelievable like against type performer like this is not what you recognize like what we recognize anyway people our age as like mm -hmm. burt reynolds. i mean it encapsulates, <laughs> so, it encapsulates oh. his like 
all-American alpha masculinity. And yeah, he, he ends up like he's kind of the architect of a lot of the, the dissent and the trouble in this film. It, it's a brilliant piece of casting. It's I think, uh, I mean, originally they wanted, Boorman wanted Lee Marvin in the film, but he wanted a bunch of other people. He wanted Lee Marvin, like Marlon Brando, would be, I, which I feel might have honestly overshadowed it a little bit. I think Voight is probably a Ned Beatty or like much more naturalistic performers probably than mm-hmm. than them. But um, I mean, originally uh, the, the author of the book wanted Sam Peckinpah to make the movie, which fair i think like this is a peck and palm yeah. material 100 percent. i don't know what that film would have been like mm-hmm. but it probably would have been amazing and i would have loved to have shown up for it but you know it, things things aligned yeah. really well here no it's How great the fuck and old was lee marvin with this movie came <laughs> up? my god that would have been some odd I have, how how old is lee marvin at any stage of life he, like he's one of those guys where he, he watches his 20s. first movie or his last yeah, he looks like I he's fucking sixty. I just looked it up, 60. and he died at age sixty-three. Whereas what I just watched Point Blank the other day, I was like, "What is he sixty-five? <laughs> <laughs> this is Lee Marvin. Yeah, Lee Marvin, perpetual old guy. He's just always old. Fucking love always it. Always old, but you would um, never pick a fight with him. That that was the Lee Marvin. Exactly. Deal. Exactly. Uh, no, this Deliverance is fantastic, and. I, again, like I feel like a lot of people haven't seen it or they've just, you know, watched uh, a heavily cut version on TV at some point in their life or they just know it from the one scene. But God, this this movie is probably aged better than <laughs> a lot of movies that from from this period to the point where it's like, oh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a contemporary movie about the Republican Party. You've got your uh, your displaced Appalachian working class people. And then you've got your suburban Republicans who think they know how to fucking do things and they just roll into an unfamiliar territory and get their asses fucking handed to them. Uh, so, yeah, it's 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 wonderful. It's really it's, funny. It's a beautiful yeah, thing. There, there's an element to this. this reminds me of an actual real world encounter uh, with a friend of a friend of ours who he's into outdoorsy stuff. He works a very cushy, you know, white collar job. And, you know, he's, he's a very nice guy. He's great. But he's really, like, trying to do these, like, extreme camping things. He has plans for them. And one of them he proposed. And, you know, he proposed what he was going to do. And all he just burst out laughing at just the concept of it because it's just i think struggle the same concept is here it's like you're just trying to feel something like why are you why would you want to do mm-hmm. like this is like going camping for like a relaxing time fair enough but like you're just like no people die doing this and it's like maybe you shouldn't do it then don't try it because yeah you know what you this is why i don't go outside <laughs> like, this is, it's fucking dangerous out there man and, and I don't, I mean, I, the whole camping thing, like, yeah, nature and relaxing and, and whatever, but you're still like sleeping on fucking dirt and rocks and shit. Last time I went camping, it was for a, a rafting trip. And I thought when they said rafting, I was thinking in the mode of tubing, which is like a, a very like chill, shallow river where you just kind of like get drunk and just kind of like float. It's very relaxing. Uh, this was not that. This was like rocks and rapids. And and then like I, I was fucking Googling this shit because then I made the mistake of I ate a shitload of edibles and drank a bunch and <laughs> trying to like do this. Were, rapid were you the shit. Ned, ba- like you actual, were the like Ned Beatty of your rock. trip? <laughs> I well, <laughs> pretty much. But but the thing is, is like it was three fourths Ned Beatty and like one fourth people who knew what they were doing, but did not adequately explain what was going on. And then like we're, we're you know, they're we're on this bus and we're going to the, the launch site for the 
the rafts and the guy driving is like drinking a beer while he's driving us to the site. And then he goes, yeah, I didn't bring the helmets because not many people ask for them. And I was just like, ha ha, that doesn't seem good. And then I Google the river we're on and you could Google this. It's called the Wolf River in, in Wisconsin. And the first thing that'll come up is just like X amount of people have died doing this. And I'm like, Why the fuck am I doing this? I don't belong outside. I am fucked up. And, and then you're going down this thing and you're hitting all these rapids. You're bopping all around. And then you just see like flipped over like tubes and canoes that people have abandoned at some point. You're like, what the fuck is going on? So deliverance really hit yeah. for me. This is... We would all be the oh, Ned 100%. Beatty. Let's I mean, yeah, this but, is a uh, real Ned Beatty. And, and this is the thing: like they come in, and I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it captures that whole mindset. Like they come in, Burt Reynolds' character particularly, and it's like that confidence of like you know we're expert, we know what we're doing, we're we're gonna go and do it, and they're kind of like condescending to the people who live in the area, like you don't know about this stuff, and it's like they live here, like they're they're in it. This isn't weekend or shit, you know. It's to the point where they don't have to talk about knowing anything of it you know and it's, so there's this obvious mm -hmm. remove between them and he's just looking like trying to lowball some people to drive his car for his optimal convenience so he can get picked up at the end it's it, yeah it sets up this great antagonism um and i mean i suppose part of the concerns for the film i mean i guess is representation of the of the rural people but they're kind of like it's not really about the rural people they're just sort of they're in the background they're they're treated with some contempt by the characters but they're not like it's more kind of like the the what would you say the the kind of spirit of the nation the kind of underlying class on which the you know the soil that america has grown out of and that no one wants to look at anymore because it's kind of like it's it's a little icky and uncomfortable um it works really well on that mode and i must say like i've i've I don't know if I've ever seen this film start to finish before, and I'm really regretting mm -hmm. that because this is and like this is just an incredible film, and and the rape scene is absolutely pivotal, you know, narratively. But like, so there's so many little details and structures. This is just a beautifully fleshed out film. It's it's just it's got everything in you know in such a mm -hmm. sparse kind of design it's it's this is just an elegant superb piece of filmmaking mm -hmm. yeah it, it, it's a straight up masterpiece like absolutely um yeah it, it, and it announces itself like immediately this whole like setting uh where they're gonna dam this river and flood the entire region and this dialogue that's like unseen occurring within the car <laughs> just like this kind of absurdist thing that that really still brings very true where it's like well we shouldn't be doing this but we're doing it so let's go fucking conquer this land before it's we destroy it it's just like it's just the most <laughs> ridiculous shit at times and it's but it's it feels authentic and it's just this is uh, great like i i'm with jack i've not i've not bothered to sit through it because it's again it's the movie where guys get raped in the woods, woo, and hillbillies, and it's it's just it's so much fucking more than that. This movie is tremendous. Like yeah, this stands it, with with virtually anything from like that auteur era of the seventies. Frankly, it's so funny because in a lot of ways it was instrumental to sort of kicking off this brief craze of like exploitation that even continues to this day like god how many how many wrong turn sequels are there at this point that's a genuine question there's probably like six there's at least them. six yeah. and it's absurd and yeah. it's so funny because 
I think when people think about this movie and what they know about this movie, like you said, it's the it's like the hillbilly rape movie. And it's about these all these poor guys in the woods that get abducted by a, a hillbilly clad and are raped violently, endlessly. It's like, no, that whole rape sequence is five minutes and it's like happenstance and it's like the movie has it's it's instrumental to the plot but like that's not what it is and it's it's so funny that people just conceive of this in as like a traditional horror movie when it could not be farther from that uh it's it's a different type yeah, of i fucking of horror. wish i fucking <laughs> wish every time i had to watch a movie about people going into the woods and getting attacked by hillbillies that had like one one thousandth of the depth of this fucking film. Yeah, I know. And and this this has more in common with like Tucker and Dale versus evil than it does fucking wrong turn. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the, the conclusion yeah. of it, I mean, because, yeah, the whole back half of this film is essentially a bunch of guys trying to survive because they've because things actually went wrong and nature's actually really dangerous. Uh, and then just trying to like backfill for their return to civilization to try and like bury what happened to like just keep it with them because the law is you know the law doesn't exist in the woods and they're just kind of trying to take advantage of that you know they're all civilized humans but they went into the uncivilized american battle of woods and some bad stuff happened and they're coming out the other end and they're like let's just we'll not talk about it. all this will be underwater soon and i mean the final shot of the film i think it's the final shot where they're just where he sees a um, a graveyard being moved and they're just digging up graves and just like moving coffins and it's just like this incredible mm -hmm. just encapsulation of this thesis of quote-unquote progress you know it's like the vestiges of yeah. how we move things along and are respectful and everything but like we bury everything everything gets there's a lake on top of everything and that's deliverance yeah and it's, it's again, very much, uh, you know, it's talking, it, it's in discourse with Vietnam, sure. I'd say that for sure, and, and the returning veterans and the horrors that uh, this country committed there. But this is, yeah, everything about this setting from its, the reality of it and the poignancy of this sort of planned demolition. But yeah, when they're like held up by the, the church that they're fucking moving across the road, this is so much in this setting that just makes the film so much more it's 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 remarkable that's all i could say is is mm -hmm. if you know this as you know squeal like a pig then fucking do yourself a favor and yeah go fucking watch it and you know if you don't want to see that scene well close your eyes because it's not that long and there's so much more to appreciate in this yeah film. absolutely i mean exactly. you're talking about the exploitation thing i did notice um is it billy redden i believe is the name of the the boy then boy who played the banjo player the iconic dueling banjo scene mm -hmm. uh, he's just got a handful of other film credits and almost all of them for a character with banjo in the name but they do work for directors <laughs> as disparate as lamberto bava and tim burton so that's pretty wild spread on that. And it go, go, goes to show how, how much this film has uh, kind of permeated the Listen, consciousness. It's the, it's the holy trinity here. We got Borman, Bava, and Burton. Like, what else do you need? That's, that's it. <laughs> the three Bs. That, that scene also is, is just, like, dynamic. And that fucking, the way they that Borman chooses to run that score throughout everything. Man, yeah, there's so many brilliant choices. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And hey, 
Uh, speaking of unfairly maligned, overlooked, or misunderstood stone-cold fucking masterpieces, what do you do after you make deliverance? It's a critical success. It's a commercial success. Uh, it, it has like completely permeated culture. So you get a blank check. And what do you do with your blank check? You write, produce, and direct a hard sci-fi epic motherfucking Zardoz. Uh, the gun is good. The penis is evil. Uh, that's really all you need to know. It's This is another one, too, where I, I think like 2008 YouTube has has ruined this for people just because when it was released, it was kind of misunderstood and it was, you know, considered just kind of like muddled and silly. And then that was sort of scooped up by Internet culture however many years ago, 15 years ago and reformed into the, oh, it's the worst movie ever. Let's laugh at this. There's nothing to laugh at in Zardoz. What are you, a fucking idiot? I think it, it's it runs, yeah. it runs the problem, I think, like across these three films, which is, you know, Borman is absolutely means what he says. There's no ironic room mm-hmm. distance at all. And that counts as much for Deliverance and for Zardoz equally. Like, he's absolutely in it. And I think a lot of modern audiences, unfortunately, are they don't understand that anymore because movies are shit now. And that's like it's a serious problem. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a serious comprehension problem. Grant in the 70s, it was difficult because it's a very you always have this problem with like it's the distant future, but it's very much the present. And, you know, there's a speculative kind of like everything has to look a little different, a little strange. And unless you have fucking Blade Runner money, it's very difficult to really, ex- in, you know, expand on that. And Zardoz is kind of has this environmental element through it that really means it can't go that route. So everything's a bit hippie, a bit, you know, kind of like 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 a arts and crafts shop, which I think works perfectly fine once you get mm-hmm. on the level of Borman meaning this but you know 70s audiences i get a little bit of trouble with it sure but modern audiences, i like i think a lot of people just they don't know how to parse this crap anymore like they don't know how to like how a film that just talks directly and just means what it says and when people have feelings it doesn't cut to someone going like oh well that's crazy you know that's a joke you know it's it's that's (laughs) we're losing this and it's something that strikes me within this and the next film we talk about like excalibur it's just like like i haven't seen movies like these forever you know modern movies that are just like straight up what they mean what they say what do you mean jack there's like fucking 10 king arthur movies released (laughs) last year (laughs) yeah it's it really does feel like that in zardoz because there's real sincerity behind everything he's doing and it's almost like contemporary audiences like you said they can't process that without ironic detachment so and the other thing is just like for this society because there's financial limitations and what you can do so essentially you get like I don't know. Uh, you get Downton Abbey with some crystals and, and some plants and plastic bags, and that's fine. But then Borman layers all this stuff on top of it where he's like integrating, you know, meditation and collective consciousness and all this other shit. And it's it's like an entire culture that he's creating for these people that are within the vortex. And it's almost like, the you know, these the people that are critical of it, they can't conceive of this shit being sincere so they look at oh everybody's doing this like collective meditation thing where they like shoot each other evil glances that commit acts of psychic violence and and they they see that they go oh that's that's fucking ridiculous it's like no it's it's the fucking fabric 
of this film. That's what it is. And, even, and they can't accept even it. Even the fundamental of like, huh, Sean Connery in like a diaper with like, you know, his cross bandoliers of, of bullets is like, that looks goofy. And it's like, yes, that's because his entire purpose in the film is a guy who rides around in a horse and murders people and doesn't care how he dresses. That, you know, so, I mean, yeah. like, even fundamentally yeah. in the design level, it's completely comprehensible. It's just, you know, you're just looking and thinking like, oh, it's Sean, like, I can't imagine the guy in the tuxedo from James Bond doing that. And it's like, well, Borman can. So get on his level, like run with it. Yeah, this is the sort of movie that makes me like hate the Matrix. I'm like, well, this is like the Matrix. If it didn't pull any fucking punches whatsoever, it was just like weird 70s experimental theater. Like. What if Neo's purpose was to exterminate mankind because they're a fucking plague? <laughs> like, yeah. It is super nihilistic in, in a sense, but it's also like oddly touching and hopeful. And it's just so full of fucking ideas everywhere. Like, yeah, I, I, I can't express how much this movie it's amazing. Like it, it's fantastic. Like, and, and it looks, like, it I, looks incredible I, for one and a half million dollars. As much as we talk about like they didn't have huge budget, like what he rings out of one and a half million is pretty spectacular. Yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Like I, especially cause Connery, break. Yeah. Connery cost $200,000 and apparently he was struggling to get work after bond. Cause I mean, he, he just done the last, I think he'd returned Bond to Diamonds Are Forever, which he was famously an asshole on and pretty much just gambled all day on set and then like or gambled in Las <laughs> Vegas and then rolled in like hungover and did his lines and he got paid a million dollars, like a record breaking million dollars for that because it just the, the Bond franchise needed Connery that much. But probably, you know, that developed an issue like he was James Bond. He was so associated with he was struggling to find work after that. And Connery did some really Trojan work after that with with that million dollars he got paid he set up a, a scottish kind of like a, a film company and did the offense where which is a really fantastic like complete sea change from james bond but you know taking on zardoz maybe not a bad idea either just like completely recontextualize it shape shake it up and, and like he's good here he looks a little baffled throughout the whole thing but that's yeah. that's because he is the whole character mm -hmm. is basically been thrust into the complete unknown mm-hmm yeah, it is. I am man. It's hard to talk about this movie. Even like, it's just such an experiential thing. Like, I just from the open, like all the imagery. This fucking stone head thing. Like, what a, a goddamn inspired thing. <laughs> and the way it's integrated as a miniature and God, it it is incredible. The the whole you you want to make a meme about you know the gun is good, but that scene is staggering and the sentiment is staggering this is just a movie that is brimming with prescient ideas and it's legitimately predictive and it's just straight up powerful yeah mm -hmm. i mean i i would agree with you and and again i've i'd never seen sardos before i'd always meant to you see all the memes and for me like the memes it doesn't it's like Okay, I'm just curious in the movie now i'm not like huh this dumb movie like i which i feel a lot of people they they hit that that shortcut, you know, a lot of people I talk to about movies discard movies they've never seen and they're not discarding it based on they've seen other stuff by the director and they didn't like it or they, you know, a certain tendency in the market or whatever, you know, like, I mean, we all have a bullshit meter to some degree when you watch enough movies that you kind of like some stuff you look and you go like, eh, probably not for me. I'm, you know, I'll put that on a back burner. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll get to it. Maybe I won't. 
Yeah, like 90% of things released yeah, exactly. uh, in the last like five years. you got to have years. a bullshit meter, but I, I meet so many people who write off movies or just repeat truisms <laughs> about like, oh, Zardoz, that sucks. It's like, have you seen Zardoz? No. And it's like, we, who, what's like, what's even the curiosity there? And like, to see, surely the images of this, you're like, what? why is it like that? You'd want to find out, right? But, you know... People apparently yeah. don't, and it took me a long time to wind back to it, but that's just because I'm constantly watching other bad movies for this podcast, and we, we screwed up, and we ended up watching some good movies this week. <laughs> we'll try not to do that again. I think next week we're going to fix that, <laughs> so it's, uh, but we got there. Listen, but we're, we're going, we're going to, you know, the unknown for our listeners, so this, this is what we do. When we watch something and it turns out, oh, it's not very good, we're doing the work, we're doing the fucking work. You're not doing the work. You're just saying, oh, Zardoz, that's shitty. That's a joke. You're not watching Zardoz. Watch the fucking Zardoz. It's good for you. Okay? It's not shitty. It's not a joke. It's it's one of the best, like, hard science fiction movies I could recall ever seeing, oh, frankly. Yeah. Like, this it's, is like it's just... this is like if you talk shit about, like, Solaris or something. Like, what are you <laughs> right. fucking doing? You fucking clown. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, for me, for yeah, me, the so, meme potential in this, honestly, what I did think was really funny is with uh, just all the clothing and everything, everyone's wearing very, like, the, the Eternals are wearing these, like, lightweight clothes, and I'm just, and Connery's walking around in his, his, his red underpants, and the whole thing was shot in, basically, in, like, Wicklow, Ireland, and I'm just like, I just hope they had a warm summer that year, because everyone must have been goddamn freezing throughout that shoot, but, you know, oh, yeah. that's <laughs> worth it. Well, yeah, I mean... It does have tremendous, beyond being, like, a legitimately fucking hyper-intelligent, hyper-interesting film, it also has camp potential. And if you, you, you can enjoy it on that sure. level as well, because the wardrobes and the sets are at times completely goddamn ridiculous. Beyond a man is wearing a diaper, it's just like, it is just very, I think there's you know, some Renfair commune, and there's, like, scenes like Connery's going into, like, this mirrored prism thing and it, it, there's clearly like nothing behind it he's not stepping into anything he's just kind of doing like the invisible staircase like doop, doop, doop. it's it's kind of it's campy it is sure but that doesn't detract from it it's just another way to access yeah, I think, it, I think it's part of like a pre like film appreciation generally so, i mean every film is somewhat of its time pretty much even as much as like orson welles declare every you know, artists must be out of step with time. I mean, everything is produced in its time. And like there, there is this, the, the futuristic visions of the 1970s are crystallized quite heavily here. Um, and they're a very specific kind of a thing that obviously is nothing like, although we haven't made it to the year 2300. So for all we know, Zardoz nailed it. But uh, since everyone's able to still breathe oxygen on the planet Earth, it's actually looking less and less likely we'll make it that far. But nonetheless, you know, it's it's still, you know, if you could appreciate it as a 70s vision of, for you know, for, of the future, it's really a, a vision of 70s craft. There's, like we mentioned, there's just so much to appreciate in here. And a lot of, like, certainly if you enjoy something like the Holy Mountain, Jodorowsky's, like, lavishly odd uh, production design. I mean, this will, this, you'll get a lot out of this. You will enjoy that, you know? Um, same, same yeah. rules apply. And mm. I think we'll get into that with the next film too, but one of the things that is kind of a Borman thing is not necessarily having a score composed for these films uh, and using pre-existing music. 
And one of the most inspired choices is using Beethoven's Seventh, which is just a, a really powerful piece of music that really was not used in films prior to this. There was there's like an instance of a 30s horror film that used it, uh, but this is really kind of the genesis of this piece of music, which if you're not familiar with, you're familiar with it. You just don't know it by name. Uh, the Allegretto um, plays over, well, it plays throughout if this. If it wasn't motif, used in a Looney the, Tunes. Most powerfully in the closing yeah, if it wasn't montage. used by the Looney Tunes, then no one knows the, the classical music effect. Yeah. And this one didn't really fit with the Looney well, Tunes score. I think that people know it because it just... Like that's probably it feels like it's Zardoz's longest like lasting meaningful impact is that this uh piece of Beethoven music became like sort of a, a Hollywood coded like, well, we want people to cry during this montage, so we're gonna use this piece of music. Cause it's in like I'm looking at it. Well, Tarsum Singh used it in the fall, which is I, I think homage more than anything else, because clearly that that's a film that is appreciative of this sort of work but after that it, it just became kind of like soup it was in the nicholas cage film uh knowing <laughs> uh oh, yeah, that one uh, right. it was it was also in the climax of the king's speech it was used in x-men apocalypse <laughs> it's like oh god oh man yeah no i, I mean he, i think he commissioned for this um like the music throughout this film is quite unusual. It's got like some electronic yeah. elements with like medieval instruments mixed in through like the, you know, and this was actually commissioned music too. Um, it, it's, there's mm -hmm. a definitely kind of an unusual synthesis throughout the film. And then, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really funny. And I, I found this, uh, you know, Zardoz, you talk to anyone, they'll tell you they've never seen the movie, but they know it's bad. It's, it's a goofy, silly movie. And I was watching Zardoz and I, I teared up in the finale. It's this, this wonderful, moving, very simple, but just, you know, after the culmination of events, very powerful statement. Because, I mean, ultimately, Zardoz is kind of a film about... Um, you know, kind of people trying to remove themselves from time and, and how doing that would seem so desirable, but ultimately weakens the fundamental of human experience. Everything is tied to to the fragility, um, you know, and, and it's obviously not the first film to tackle that. But, you know, I mean, it's a really it lays that out in a really interesting fashion and, it, you know, within a framework that I think is, is very compelling it's a, just a really tremendous film. It's it's fantastic, and it's it's not mm -hmm. you know I I know it's got its cult audience, but I still even wonder how much of the cult audience is just like haha silly costumes, goofy inflatables. What are they even doing? Kind of stuff, you know. Uh, but I mean, it's a real film mm -hmm. about the tensions of of social actors and and kind of like I mean people who are craving death. Uh, you know, having having lived eternally in this, you know, fantastically utopian society made up of endless democratic voting, um, you know, that they're like the yeah, crave death. <laughs> it's fucking amazing, too. Yeah, because uh, the, the politics of this are just like beautifully nuanced and just perfectly realized in every single way possible, which is like it, it's literally like a environmentally conscious wealthy class of people that literally live in a walled garden <laughs> where they keep the yeah. unwashed masses away from them and then they create a fake god so that they can go out into the world 
and then take a certain su uh, subset of these, you know, poor people, these these fucking barbarians out there and essentially manipulate them into murdering all the other people as as like a, a means of control. And then in turn, after the extermination, they use these same people to enslave each other and then produce wheat crops so they can feed their, you know, their utopian folks over here in the vortex. And it's so wonderful because, oh, yeah, they, they democratically vote on everything. And like any any single, um, you know, uh, misstep is an act of psychic violence and you're sentenced to like five years of aging or whatever. And but there's this wonderful moment where one of the women are like, well, you know, I I have never voted for forced labor of of these, you know, barbaric people outside of the vortex. And then someone else is like, yeah, but you eat the fucking bread. <laughs> so, yeah. and that's the thing is they're, they're all complacent. There, there's this, I mean, the, the element, I mean, it's not lost on me, you know, um, there's a colonial bent to it too. I mean, you know, they're they're using these people's labor to grow food that they ship out effectively out of the country. That you know that means something when you film in Ireland, and it means something when you have even though the guys are wearing red diapers, when you have people in you know like regular peasant garb being whipped and shot in the on on the farmland. You know, there you know there there's resonant images throughout this film that you know still really hit um, and does kind of speak mm -hmm. towards the larger way in which, you know, civilized, quote-unquote, society structures itself on unimaginable violence, uh, you know, which they which mm -hmm. they just keep at a remove so they don't have to think about it. They don't sanction it. It just sort of happens, and you know. Yeah, and and then they reconfigure it as this, like, colonial altruism. Like, they're, they're doing it for some greater good, and that, you know, the, these people outside of the vortex, really, this is what they need, and we're doing them a favor. Uh, I, I also love that they see themselves as the custodians of art and culture for all of humanity, which amounts to just all these these great works of Western art basically locked up <laughs> yes. in a fucking closet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like basically like it's like, like Citizen Kane Xanadu, it's just a fucking warehouse full of shit. Just like yes, stuck everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> well, and it presages like digital preservation too it's, it's all in this fucking crystal it, it, you know it doesn't actually exist or enrich anything it's just it's accessible if you want to see it uh through your mind crystal i yeah I, it's just there's so much yeah like really that bread the this stuff of like forced labor is is pointedly used to feed like the elderly and the insane and the people who've succumbed to apathy and can't contribute to society. It, it, yeah. If deliverance is, is pointed firmly at the right. I think this one is, is looking at uh, you, the, the rich left, you know, the, this sort of empty liberalism uh, with this faux sort of sincere interest in the underclass but it, mm -hmm. yeah it points now towards like the technocracy and this idea of singularity and this it, just it keeps going like this movie i don't oh, know yeah. man i think it, i like, think it's it's telling us something here yeah I, the, the the messiah is an exterminator baby <laughs> it's a wild thing to come I, up with i would with. love 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 to screen this in front of a bunch of like Silicon Valley tech bros just to get their reaction, because I'm pretty sure this is what they want, right? They want like 
democratic feudalism where they can sort of separate themselves from the people they don't like and then live in a strange utopia where they've uh, created endless life. Yeah, I mean, any um, any world then, where uh, they where there's actually proposals to turn homeless people into wireless hotspots. Like we're we're already like we're fucked. We're in trouble. We've yeah, missed. We're there. The point. We're Zardoz. Yeah, you know, I, I think I think the only thing Borman is is missing out on here is like um, in in his future this this colonial minded uh, you know neoliberalism is driven by environmental and cultural concerns. But ultimately, I don't I don't think <laughs> contemporary, uh, you know, technocrats would do that kind of thing. They'd probably just turn all of the existing art into NFTs and then make Soylent Green. Yeah, so, and destroy the urges uh, of... Like, yeah, otherwise also, right I think it. It, it may have missed the boat on, like, the technocracy creating a uh, false god and, and true religion because that's too binding for a culture. Uh, it's all about... Uh, dissolving the bonds between uh, every single person uh, nowadays yeah a complete detachment <laughs> that's that's it yeah that's what we're going for i, I must say one of the weird funnest things that, that i learned from this movie as a complete non sequitur but uh, it stars as alfred frayne or albert frayne uh is is niall bogey well-known irish actor uh but what i did learn researching this is that he's also an alien three i knew that but i didn't realize that his character in alien three also has the surname bogey so that's just something. If that ever comes up in pulp oh. trivia, just you know, you're welcome. Yeah. Do Zardoz and Alien Three exist in the same universe? That's yes. Fair question. Absolutely. Without question. Uh, and worth noting again to Borman's uh, strengths is that the only part of this movie I probably don't like and think uh, tips over the line to camp is the bizarre floating head intro, which apparently. Yeah was uh, not Borman's call at all. It was just a studio fucking mandate to explain the film to which, audiences. Which is, which which is, is insane, dude. No! <laughs> no, that's the thing. It's just like the intro perfectly does that. And it's quite clear from the outset. Like, if you're having trouble parsing some of the, the philosophical musings of this movie, okay, fine. But the idea that there's people who live in a vortex and play God, and then there's people who don't live in this you know decaying utopia who are just off killing people in the name of a false god that is all very clear from the outset like you don't need a floating fucking head thing i, I don't fuck with floating heads uh, same thing with night of the hunter i don't i don't like the intro with the with the singing and the talking heads you know any of that shit uh, I mean, has, has there ever been it. an example of a studio intervention to like make a movie more legible that's ever actually like worked you know, like the Blade Runner narration. Like, I, I is, has it ever been a good idea? Probably not. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> one I'm not for sure. our listeners. That's, Throw that's it a, out that's there. That's a tough one. Yeah, I, I would love a great example. I'm sure they exist. I just don't know. Well, what they're that probably would just like. less intrusive, like text scrolls or something. And you're like, okay, oh, that makes sense, I guess. Does it enrich the film? No, but it probably aids in explanation without like actively uh, yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much of David know, Lynch's Dune was studio intervention to try and make it legible, but honestly, even that just made it weirder. So it kind of works. Yeah, sure. that kind of works too. <laughs> I, th I think all the VO in Dune was like studio notes, essentially. And that's some of the weirdest shit ever. Like... <laughs> It's one of my favorite things that more movies should do. It's like, oh, you're gonna do voiceover? Well, it has to be in like weird cryptic whispering. So you gotta you gotta lynch it or malik it. And those are the only acceptable ways. 
That's it. Um, all right. Well, you know, what do you do after you make Zardoz and then you're like, well, I, I guess I'm going to go two for two on movies that people don't understand. You do Heretic, The Exorcist 2. Uh, where, where do you head after that? And you're like, let me film uh, an Arthurian legend in the strangest way humanly possible. Why not? So you make Excalibur in 1981. And I love this movie because... It initially, like in pre-production and and just the planning stages, Borman wanted to make Lord of the Rings, like the entire fucking trilogy as a single movie, uh, which he did not make. But then I feel like he's like, all right, well, I got all this like really heavy armor that I had custom made, so <laughs> I guess I'll do King Arthur. Why the fuck not? And in in the same tradition of what I assume it would have looked like if you tried to do the entire Lord of the Ring trilogy as a single film, uh, this is just completely sprawling uh, to the point of of almost being like nonsensical, but in a way that I'm totally for. It really does feel like like a 14-hour Netflix limited series just smashed into two and a half hours of it's, film. Yeah, it's a film which of movement. Which I'm fine with because... It's film of movements. It's, it's so... You know, like, it, it, it has the sections. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's like, it, it is a sprawling story. It, it's like, but there's like four specific stories within it that just kind of like pick up where the other one ends. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And it it works perfectly here because... God, this movie is fucking gorgeous, but it has this really like dreamy, hazy quality to it that completely lets it just kind of go off the rails and and do its own thing. Uh, I, I think if I'm trying to like look at movies that kind of give you the same vibe, uh, a Gary the Wrath of God comes to mind again. That movie obviously has a really you know kind of hazy, dreamy quality to it. Uh, Fulci's Conquest, which probably came out after Excalibur, similar, not as successful. Uh, but goddamn, this movie is e even when I wasn't loving it, I I just it, it's a fucking mood, man. Like you just, I just want to like bathe in whatever this film is. And the fact that it was a runaway success, like this was actually not a flop, and it's just so goddamn in left field. It's insane. I think um, not enough people talk in Excalibur. These yeah, days. I think I think visually you could point as well to like two Japanese cinematographers like Ron and uh, Quaidon, which which you know were which, oh, are, which are films that people immediately gravitate towards because they're so visually rapturous. But a lot of people don't think that like you know well yeah they just a guy just shot the Arthurian legend in the woods in Ireland and it looks similar <laughs> um, that's you know yeah. a crazy thing to do and it's amazing I think it's really funny I mean for the offset that's like no you can't make Lord of the Rings it would cost too much money uh, and well I think originally he wanted to do the Arthurian legend he did originally want to do that and they said no that would cost too much money how about you try and make the Lord of the Rings and like, as, as if like <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about like that's enormous how much cheaper could that possibly be and then when he turned that in they were like oh no that would cost way too much money so anyway about the Arthurian legend mm. plan you have um, go for yeah. it <laughs> and I mean it's it's and again, this like coming back to the point about like Zardos. Well, this is it's a wonderful film, uh, and in no small part because it absolutely treats its material with total sincerity. It you know its its tensions, its conflicts, its friendships, its romance. All of it is 
utterly unaffected and untinged by irony um, or, you know, kind of like tongue-in-cheekness to the point, honestly, that a few of the humorous moods almost seem a little bit misguided to me. There, there's a few kind of like, you know, little jokes thrown in, I, I'm guessing, just to like, because it's a good idea to lighten the tone here and there. And honestly, oh, come on, Jack. <laughs> We love a wacky Merlin moment. We do, come on, we, we come do on. indeed. Merlin. That's an unhinged performance. I'll say that. That Merlin. Merlin is like, was he post up? Like, I, I, it's just the whole thing. Like, his, his voice seemed. Oh, there's yeah, a lot of weird from ADR his body. In this movie. Yeah. <laughs> but what a film. Jesus. Mm hmm. Um, it, one of the things I really love about this is it, it does kind of harken back to like a Quidon or something like that. And, and it, it has such a unique dreamy look to it where you're just you're just drawn to it it doesn't even fucking matter what they're saying or doing but i feel like i know borman's like 90 years old right now he's still alive he's still kicking i do you think borman's played elden ring because <laughs> I, I i'm getting a lot of from soft in his shit like uh even even zardoz like the idea of like a decaying utopia where everyone just wants to fucking die that's like a very from software vibe and then one of the things i love about excalibur is it's just it's fucking filthy and and everyone is slow like all these battle scenes are just like guys in extremely heavy plate armor just stuck in the mud falling on their fucking faces and it, it's it's special because if you watch almost any other interpretation of Arthurian legend it everything feels really like slick and clean and optimistic and uh, there's an entire segment of this movie towards the this you know in the second half where oh it's just like Lancelot wandering around for ten years watching his like friends yeah. get killed and it's crazy it's absolutely crazy and it's it's like soul crushing it does feel like um, it does feel like the synthesis because we have the one exception you're right most of like the knights and armor kind of thing is very slick we have the exception in the 70s and like 73 I think which is of course Robert Brisson's mm -hmm. Lancelot of the Lake which is everything yeah, yeah. every other night's film isn't it's like the whole soundtrack is the creaking of the armor with every tiny movement they make whenever someone has a fight it's really stagey heads fall off and just a single spray of blood shoots straight in the air like it's it renders all of it <laughs> absurd and it's it's a brisson film it's incredible um but it is really funny that it feels like Bresson made that to kind of strip away a lot of the slickness and the artifice of those films. Then Monty Python made Search for the Holy Grail, which felt very indebted to to spoofing Bresson, but also the larger kind of like the, the, the mores of that kind of genre. And even though it was made like six years prior to Excalibur, in turn, Holy Grail feels like it's uh, spoofing scenes directly out of Excalibur because Borman is recreating them with total earnestness because, you know, the detail, that's what the films and the stories are. They are men in armor hitting each other with swords and cutting bits off and things. So, you know, and toil and mud. I mean, this movie is, is essentially, it's just like, it's just like mud and shining, like soft focus glimmer. That's the whole, and mist. That's the whole film. Mud, mist, and, and reflections. That's, and it looks incredible. It, it is an absolutely just visually incredible looking film. I believe, I don't think it won, but I think it got nominated for a cinematography Oscar, I think. Um, 
you probably probably should have won. I don't know who's doing more out there work than this movie that year, but um, yeah, <laughs> and, it's, and what's really impressive about this film, I mean, like it opens with this kind of prologue with Uther Pendragon played by a very young, like 30-year-old Gabriel Byrne. Uh, there's so many great actors, like this is one of their first major roles, like film roles, you have like Gabriel Byrne, Liam Neeson, and Kieran mm-hmm. Hines, and uh, several others show up, and even Helen Mirren was... Patrick, Patrick Stewart. Stewart. Yeah, Pat yeah, ripped Stu. Patrick Stewart. So it's always wild to remember that that dude was just like, could tear you in two in 1981, apparently, if he'd wanted to. And I want to say, we were talking about Lee Marvin, another guy who has spent his entire life looking like he's 65 years old, Patrick yeah. Stewart. Oh, 100%, yeah. yeah. Um, but it's like like this prologue with Uther Pendragon, uh, you know, with Gabriel Byrne playing him, like... Honestly, that's strong enough. I was like, I was almost sad when he died. It's like, no, you know, like there's this intensity burn brings. It's incredible. And the movie picks up because, no, the whole movie's going to be like that. But like to start that strong and then let it go. It's like there's other there's there's many other films that honestly, if they could have found that vein, they never they would be tapping it for as long as they possibly could. But um yeah, Borman is he's he's covering a huge amount of ground here in in the the Arthurian legend cycle, which you know I mean, it's it's a good story. It's a real legend kind of affair. It's full of allegory and grand kind of like conflicts, and it's about you know the king being one of the the land, the king and the land being one, you know, and and this kind of wisdom to guide it and cycles of rebirth and everything. Very similar, honestly to Zardoz there, there's an enormous amount of overlap in terms of their idea of of cyclical mm-hmm. time um, but you know if you get on its level it, it doesn't feel the need to kowtow to any other kind of like modern concerns or anything and, and you know I think it really works in its favor it's that real fantasy adventure film built on you know a, a timeless legend that you know i'm trying to like they don't really like i'm trying to think do we make these anymore or these things like this feels like a film that would be perfect to like you know show your kid when they're a little too young because there's like boobs and blood in it uh but like it'll just it'll just mm-hmm. jam itself in there and the conflicts in it will be you know they'll ring through and it'll be it'll be amazing, you know. Uh, that that's like it just feels like you know. Even I'm I'm by no means a child. Like I'm pushing forty, and I watch it, and I just feel like it it recaptures that headspace. Uh, and that's that's pretty mm-hmm. significant. That's not a voice that's very common to find in cinema. Even with a lot of the stuff that came out when I was that age, didn't hit me then. Didn't work. See, yeah. I don't know. This was like my shit when I was a kid. For some reason, I I was always into this sort of. Uh, you know knights and dragons and whatnot which is odd because i could not give less of a fuck about any of it now but yeah when i was a kid it was always around i think it was just like way more of a part of the culture and it was it was geared in a tone that was like reasonable for that like again now if i were to watch like guy richie's king arthur i'm sure it would be the last fucking thing on earth that a, like a, a six-year-old would want to sit through <laughs> also the last thing on earth i would want to sit through but uh yeah, it, it's just like they had this, these films had a very different tone than I would say, where it was really geared into a fantastical fairy tale sort of realm that was, even when the material involved violence and nudity, was still something very accessible to younger audiences in a, in a way that really doesn't exist now. Everything's got to be like 
uh, quote unquote mature in the least actually mature yes. way possible. Yeah, no, the the or mm-hmm. for mature audiences means less. The, the maturity required for those is means less than it ever has, which I know makes sound like old folkies, but I I really think there is a there's been a slippage somewhere. They they stopped taking the art form seriously, and it's really degraded. It, you know, even the goofy stuff, like if you if you treat it with sincerity and, and tackle it head on, the rewards are really remarkable or can be. And even if and even if it doesn't work, it's still like you, you really tried. It's it's this like ironic separation that just emerged from 90s TV and just took over the whole goddamn industry has honestly, I think, set American media well, back. Maybe it's. It it could just be cyclical, Jack. There was, I'm sure, if we were living in the 50s and 60s, we would really be fucking whining about the state of, uh, like, populist Yeah, American I don't know, because in the 50s and any other day, up. you could just go to the movies and watch a fucking, like, Orson Welles or a Von Sternberg film or whatever, you know? I don't know. Uh, like, there's great films being made nowadays, but, like, the industry, the American film industry in particular, it's, it's, it's more compartmentalized it's honestly more under the thumb of corporations and it probably was even when it was completely under the thumb of corporations uh you know i don't it's just i'm not seeing it and i know in time that we'll we'll, we'll recognize voices and things will recontextualize just in the same way that when zardoz and excalibur came out like pauline kale saw excalibur and it's like oh it doesn't you know it doesn't make a lot of sense i don't really understand you know like the characters aren't given enough time to like make you know to be believable and it's like you want fucking believable King Arthur? What are you talking about? Like, it's it's a timeless <laughs> thing, you know? I, I will acknowledge, I think, actually, the guy that plays King Arthur is maybe... A, it's weird that he plays him from a teenager to an old man and he's, like, in his mid-30s. It's, it's a, uh, an interesting decision, but you know what? It works. It's fine. I don't I don't mind that at all. Also, he's, like, from the West Country and no one else is, so he's this really odd accent compared to everyone else, which I think is a little fun. Um, but, you know, yeah, it will reemerge, but I just... It, it's just seems to me you know if i were to go to any fantasy movie nowadays and also the practicality of it like this is all smoke and mirrors and real mud and like it, it limited visions you know like it's it's actually for the vastness of the film there's actually most of the compositions are very kind of compartmentalized small you know because they could only make up a certain amount of like fucking musty swamp or whatever so they had to like work within that you know nowadays you could just do you can do the whole world in a cg snapshot and i think it's it's led to this kind of laziness and this not exactly a laziness i think a misunderstanding of why any of this worked in the first place and i'm talking broadly there are exceptions absolutely but broadly I think people could do a lot with looking at Borman's films and seeing the power of limiting yourself. Well, that is the difference, uh, fundamentally, the difference between digital and film. You know, there was a point where you had to make incredibly deliberate choices at every turn, or you would just burn through your money immediately. And that's, it's a, it's a different world now. And it's, uh, I don't think that the art has benefited from it greatly. And I, you know, I am saying things are cyclical and we'll probably get back to a point where this comic book behemoth collapses entirely and they have to start exploring actual ideas. But fundamentally we're, we're kind of past the tipping point of, of capitalism that uh, I, I don't see another like 60s, 70s, like 
American film renaissance occurring. Uh, you'll have to look to a new art film. You'll probably have to look to a video game renaissance. Maybe something. we'll just find on YouTube. We'll just suddenly find there's just like feature length films being uploaded that are actually really great. That might already <laughs> be happening, honestly. But you know, well, I think I'm I think sure. the issue at this Absolutely, point is like the curation. It's so dispersed. It's it's hard to find the good stuff more than ever because it's buried under more stuff yes. than ever before. Well, I, there's always a fundamental difference too of like industry versus art and there was there's a point where the industry services the art and that was certainly occurring in the 70s and that is certainly not been occurring since at least the mid 90s and i yeah i'm a little pessimistic that it ever will again but you never know (laughs) that's fair zardoz is somewhat pessimistic about some things too and you know I think it's funny. I mean, I guess the 70s, uh, that that creative revolution came out of a panic from the film industry, you know, kind of television was encroaching and also they were finding young voices. They were losing young audiences. And yeah, I mean, the problem right now is I think the, the, the current panic in the industry that should nominally shake it up is just that streaming doesn't actually make money, uh, which was really obvious to everyone else who was watching, but apparently has bamboozled a bunch of high paid executives and uh, now they're they're trying to work out how to fix that. But that's not an artistic problem. That's like a business distribution problem. And it seems like that's what more and more of this has been reduced to. It's like a, everything's just a logistics of moving ones and zeros around. Um, so I, I don't know. Not to go too far off the Borman thing. Well, they've yeah, the things, code, Jack. Things they've, suck. You know, don't worry about the film industry now that you can't share your password with your grandma <laughs> for your Netflix account. And things are going to really take a turn for the that's better it. yeah i mean i feel like if they yeah. solve it, if they crack the streaming problem it won't involve giving more money to better artists fundamentally that's it's just not going to happen that way nope probably not uh jack just so you know i looked it up for you uh 1981 excalibur nominated for best cinematography did not win but one uh, other nominees uh, were, so the Excalibur was Alex Thompson. Uh, other nominees were Billy Williams for On Golden Pond, uh, Douglas Slocum for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Miroslav Oldurak for Ragtime, and the winner, uh, Vittorio Storaro for Reds. Movie I have not thought about in a very long time. Warren Beatty's I mean, Reds. you know what? I, I can't Fucking begrudge man. Reds. I haven't seen it in years and years, but Reds was an absolutely no. like, ridiculous thing to have ever happened, and I, I got a hand to Beatty for making it happen. And Storaro's obviously... Yeah. Storaro is Storaro, so you know uh, yeah, what? Okay, fair great. enough. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> All it's right. fine. It's fine. If one guy is going to beat Alex Thompson, it could be the guy who was like behind the God, fucking I hate camera. It. I hate on, it when uh, I can't get mad now. at the fucking Academy Awards thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Although it is funny because I'm looking at this, I'm like, fuck. Like Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it was nominated for like a dozen fucking categories, which is crazy because uh, all the babies online for it feels like a decade now have been crying because, you know, uh, Batman and Wonder Woman aren't getting nominated for Best Picture. It's like, bro, you fucking barking up the wrong tree. Uh, anyways, got to wrap things up. But I think the big takeaway from this week is. Uh, yes, we do watch good movies. Thank you very much. Uh, we watch the classics. Um, you know, like, I, I think last week as well. Clearly nothing but classics See, there. I thought the takeaway was that we need to just keep uh, deciding uh, in the middle of an episode what we're going <laughs> to At least run yeah, up time in the middle the of episodes. 
it makes us commit to things and then also <laughs> yeah we don't we don't have time to think about it really because we're just kind of working it out on air but uh i i think we've got something i i, I, I don't shitty yeah kind of <laughs> shitty for next week who knows who knows maybe we'll get a surprise out of it it's impossible to say uh anyways yeah, so if you enjoyed the show this week, uh, do us a big favor, and Steve, don't forget to do put-overs. Myros, what are you putting over? Uh, I'm putting over uh, a quick and simple one. I, it was, I was exposed to it through uh, the horror studies class I'm doing, and it was not something we watched, but something that was just kind of briefly introduced that I was not really aware of, which is shame on me, uh, is... Uh, short film by Fellini that was part of the uh, Spirits of the Dead uh, sort of co-production um, anthology film that is a adaptation of an Edgar Allan Poe thing and really as close as Fellini ever got to horror and it is called Toby Dammit and uh, this is after Fellini has transitioned into making color film and Terrence Stamp is just kind of chewing the shit out of scenery here, and it is wonderful, and it's Fellini, so of course it looks fucking incredible. And yeah, watch Toby Dammit. It's it's quite short. You can actually find it on YouTube, the restored uh, 2019 version. Um, yeah, this is worth a watch. It, it, it's just, it's a fantastic little thing, and uh, you're not going to find many better ways to spend 45 minutes. So. There you go. Good endorsement. I can't believe I almost forgot fucking putovers. Where's my brain at right now? Jesus Christ. Jack, what are you putting over this week? I, I'm going to put over uh, Emilio Miraglia's uh, The Red Queen Kills Seven Times, which is uh, normally kind of a giallo. Uh, it's not It's not a brilliant giallo, to be honest, but it's, it's a really entertaining murder mystery movie. Uh, that's absolutely bonkers. It opens with my favorite thing, which is murderous children. You know, the, the you know you always know a movie's mm. going to be a good time. It opens with like a murderous child and a vendetta that like continues into adulthood, and this one does. And uh, it's it's just it's very action packed. It's full of like nonsense twists and developments. Uh, so yeah, the Red Queen kills seven times. It's it's very entertaining. I I think anyone would have a good time with it. I got a recommendation for that one the other day, too, because uh, I was watching the best streaming service, Tubi, and they're like, hey, you might like this. Yeah. And I said, thanks, Tubi. Oh, nice. It's on Tubi. Even better. Go go check it out. It's on motherfucking Tubi. Yeah, because if, it, if it's good, it's on Tubi. If it's shit, it's not. Like, that's just how it works. Uh, this week, what am I putting over? That's, that's a really good question. Uh, watched a lot of dog shit. Watched a few good things. But uh, I think I'm going to put over a documentary from 1968 called The Queen. And uh, this is, it's its kind of a fun one. It's like a little fly-on-the-wall uh, documentary about a, uh, a drag queen beauty pageant in 1967 uh, featuring Andy Warhol and, oh God, who was the other, like some famous author or something was the other judge uh, on the panel. But uh, uh, here I tell you, we're bringing this Helen Mirren again. No, 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 not Helen Mirren. Not, not Helen so Do you Mirren, think uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, like found that sword in the lake or what? <laughs> that's that's definitely how she became <laughs> the ruler <laughs> one of her corgis sniffed it out she fucking yanked that shit uh but yeah the the queen is great it's uh it, i mean this is literally like 40 50 years before rupaul's drag race became a thing but just uh kind of seeing how people from this particular era uh really 
dealt with how to you know perform gender and and be and be a drag queen at a time when uh you literally had to wear a badge if you were dressed in drag that said like i'm a boy because uh there were laws in most states where if you like deceived someone by them thinking you were a woman uh then you could go to prison so uh fucking insane shit uh really funny movie uh really interesting compelling and it's like an hour long it's a fucking hour of your life you get to watch this great little documentary how nice is that for you myro's throwing out the the tight 45 minute movie for you too jack i don't think uh that the giallo that you recommended goes over 90 minutes so look at us just respecting the time of the listeners that's what we do we're, we're time respecters right sure yeah. Uh, also watch Excalibur. It's like nine hours long. <laughs> Anyways, uh, if you enjoyed, if you enjoyed the podcast this week, do us a big favor. There's a link in the description that'll take you to our Patreon page. And what can you do there? Well, you can give us money. And what does giving us money get you? Uh, get you access to uh, a bunch of archival optimism vaccine podcasts and writing that you can only get on our Patreon feed. Also, occasionally we will we'll create some Patreon only content and uh, you do some other stuff, too. You know, if you if you donate at the five dollar uh, level, then you get to you get to occasionally vote on what kind of an episode we're going to do. Probably do another vote soon. We haven't done one of those since the summer. Uh, and no matter what, doesn't matter who you are, if you are donating at any amount and you live in the continental United States, guess what? I'm going to send you a movie in the mail for free from my personal collection. How exciting is that? DVD, Blu-ray, VHS tape, Laserdisc, you have no idea what you're getting, but you're getting something. And uh, you know what? And and I think for some of our longtime supporters, I might be sending out another round of movies just because I got a lot of shit. I'm starting to get some duplicates on the old shelf, so... I got to send some things out. We got we to gotta rehome these. Great, real to, great sales uh, pitch there. I got some shit at home. <laughs> I got some real shit. No, it's it's because, like, I mean, great example. I'm a, I'm a Vinegar Syndrome subscriber. They just sent me this beautiful uh, 4K set of From Beyond, which I'm very excited to watch. But I also have a, uh, a Scream Factory Blu-ray of from beyond which is uh, also lovely yeah it looks it's good great. edition so i don't need both of these things so it's not shit the, the scream factory one is is Stop. rescued because it has the maybe ugliest commissioned original artwork of any blu-ray edition i've ever seen but also reversible artwork which is really important when you do that yeah yeah my whole thing is like if i'm going to respect your opinion on anything i i am willing to hear disparate opinions on Anything under the sun, except for you have to like Zardoz, and if you own a Scream Factory release, you have to flip the artwork. If if those two things aren't your aren't your bag, then I'm not interested in you. Uh, anyways, and then if you donate to our Patreon at the highest level, twenty five dollars, you get to actually dictate an episode. You get to tell us exactly what we're gonna fucking do. You want Anna Myros to watch hentai? Boy, you can you can make him do that, and he would be happy to. He would. He nothing would make him happier. Uh, also, if you're donating at $5 or above, you get your name read out on air. You get to be a, a part of Optimism Vaccine History, uh, your name associated with the degenerates on this show for all of time. And uh, 
Also, just so you know, you can make your name anything. So if you were to change your name to now, Adam what, Myros is a dumb bitch. What if we you just uh, stop with this narrative? How about, you know, people, <laughs> we have names. This is a society, Steve. <laughs> we your live parents chose that for a reason. Let's uh, lean Did into they? that. Because, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, real biblical names here. Uh, so who? what are some of the biblical names that we have at the five and above? Uh, we have Hoofy Hoof, uh, <laughs> yeah, love my that favorite one. character in, in the old book there, you know, uh, CWW, <laughs> <Good> uh, <laughs> Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula. Yeah. What is, what does CWW stand for? Christ was, I, I don't know. I, was, I did have uh, a W. It's on a postcard. <laughs> Christ. Yeah. It, we'll figure it out. Uh, but yeah. It, Lots of great stuff here. Please help us out. Uh, podcasting is expensive. It costs a lot of money to host this thing, to to just make it all happen. So uh, when you give us money, it makes our lives better. It keeps us from having shitty audio most of the time. It, it just, it helps in a, in a variety of ways. So we appreciate you. And why not get on board? Why not join the exclusive club of people who give us money? It's It's a great place to be. Other than that, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine. We would love to hear from you. Uh, Damon Packard got a lot of uh, a lot of people talking Damon Packard. I think people think that we didn't watch the right Damon Packards. Is that the general thing? Might, might have been, yeah. It's supposed to start with the with the earlier, yeah. shorter stuff, which, you know, we, we almost did, but then we decided, yeah. no, nah, we're hardcore. Let's go deep end. And we drowned, maybe. Let's jump right I in. drowned. <laughs> Although I, I do want to say, uh, just, you know, in the grand tradition of me uh, gassing myself up here and burying my buddies, I did suggest Fox Fur, and, and I think we shot it down because we didn't think it was like a feature-length movie, so we were like, oh, let's just do his, his features. We just shot it down because uh, so, you yeah, suggested it, Steve. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's also a good reason to shut anything down. If I'm like, guys, we got to do this. Immediately yeah, well, saying no is I probably your best move. I think that there's a possibility we uh, revisit the shorts yeah. for a future episode, but uh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. A pack or two electric boogaloo. I'd be in for that. Give me some Fox fur, baby. Uh, anyways. Uh, yeah, I think that about wraps things up for this week. So watch some John Borman and uh, we'll be back. Peace.